the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Dave King Engineering. Actually, James is engineering a portion of today's program as well. Coming up in the second hour of today's program, Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis, their book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. That's coming up in the second hour. And we'll um, also wind our way through some of the day's headline news and look back to the day that was. It was on April 19th that the American Revolution essentially began. James Madison wrote this, the ultimate authority resides in the people alone. The advantage of being armed, which the Americans possess over the people of almost every other nation, forms a barrier against the enterprises of ambition more insurmountable than any. James Madison, Federalist number 46. Well, on the 19th of April, we honor the anniversary of Patriots Day, the dawn of American liberty, marking the opening salvo of the American Revolution in 1775, the first step toward establishing an irrevocable declaration of unalienable rights of man, the rights of all people, subordinating the rule of men to our creator, inspired rule of law. Well, the basis of our republic's constitution, it was April 19th, 1775, the Sons of Liberty and the first Patriot Day dawned. Much more could be said, but we'll move on to more current news. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court today extended the temporary pause placed on restrictions to abortion and the abortion pill, rather, Mifepristone, until this Friday, putting off a decision on its future, at least for now. Justice Samuel Alito, who previously halted lower court rulings seeking to limit access to the controversial drug, wrote that the pause would continue until this Friday, April 21st at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. If a pristone was approved by the Food and Drug Administration in 2000, it has um, been used, uh, deregulated in recent years. Under President Biden, the FDA made abortion pills more widely available at retail pharmacies, including delivery by mail. Well, the administration and New York-based Danko Laboratories, the maker of the drug, had asked the nation's highest court to reject limits on mifepristone's use imposed by lower courts, at least as long as the legal case makes its way through the courts. They say women who want the drug and providers who dispense it will face chaos if limits on the drug take effect. Pro, uh, pro-life doctors and medical groups representing by the Alliance Defending Freedom are challenging the drug's safety. They argue the FDA chose politics over science in approving the drug and urged the court to halt approval of the drug. At question is whether or not the FDA actually has the authority to do what it did. This battle over medication abortions called chemical abortions by pro-life activists comes less than a year after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, ending federal protections for abortions. More than a dozen states have since moved to outlaw or at least heavily restrict the procedure, while others have sought to become safe havens for women seeking abortions. The case rocketed to the Supreme Court after Trump appointed District Judge Matthew 
Kazmarak, he issued a highly controversial injunction halting the FDA's approval of Mifepristone earlier this month. The order was uh, partially overturned by the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, but the appeals court preserved restrictions that made the drug available only to be dispensed up to seven weeks, not 10 and not by mail. Pharmaceutical companies, leading medical organizations, former FDA officials, 250 Democratic members of Congress, Democratic-led cities and states and liberal interest groups are backing the administration and Danko. Uh, Women who say they were injured by abortion, medical groups opposed to abortion, nearly 150 congressional Republicans and Republican-led states are supporting limits on mifepristone. The drug is taken along with um, misoprotosol, in a two-drug regimen that uh, first blocks hormones needed to keep an unborn baby alive and then causes cramps and con- uh, contractions to expel the uh, child um, now dead from the mother's womb. More than five million women in the United States have used this drug uh, to abort their uh, their children since it was approved in 2000, according to Danko. The drug is 97% effective in terminating early pregnancy, though approximately 3% of women who take the pill require surgical intervention for ongoing pregnancy, for heavy bleeding, uh, incomplete expulsion, and other reasons such as patient request, according to the manufacturer. So we will have to wait until Friday or perhaps later to hear what the Supreme Court ultimately decides to do. Well, two-thirds of the legislative session in the state of Oregon, uh, the bills that were introduced, have died. The calendar and the clock acted as legislative uh, guillotine in the dark and shuttered Oregon Capitol in the first minute of April the, the uh, 5th. As it passed midnight, the sweep of the second hand of the clock face lopped off about two-thirds of the nearly 3,000 measures introduced by the Oregon legislature this year. The first chamber deadline requiring most bills to get a committee vote or die Well, it's come and gone. The dead bill count was still being tallied two weeks later, but the amount of legislation sent to the statutory slaughterhouse was huge. At risk was legislation still stuck in a policy committee of the first chamber where it was introduced. House bills in the House, Senate bills in the Senate. Legislators scrambled to get committee chairs to save their bills by sending it to the floor for a vote or a safe harbor. The panel's exempt from the clock. Um, legislation moved to one of the 11 joint Senate House committees or to either chamber. Um, the rules or revenue committees, they lived on. Within a minute uh, into April the 5th, thousands of bills were, well, gone. A trickle might return this session using legislative sleight of hand, but the message to sponsors of the overwhelming majority was, wait till next year or next next time. This is the long year. The next year will be a short one. The drive to survive mounted by Bill's authors ran into the epic paper traffic jam created by a Republican strategy to slow and stall the conveyor belt of new laws authored by Democrats. The minority Republicans used an archaic constitutional rule to require every bill to be read in full prior to a vote on final passage. The uh, artificial reading machine with a vocal pace uh, beyond what was humanly possible droned on for hours After bills were being read or while bills were being read, the majority Democrats countered by using their leadership positions to schedule more and longer committee meetings and floor sessions. Bloviating is the natural state of uh, political bodies around the world, so I suppose it wasn't too out of place. Says uh, Representative Mo Udall, everything that's uh, been said, but not everyone has said it, the late U.S. um, representative once said quipping about a long evening of comment on Capitol Hill. Well, Republicans could extend floor sessions and shorten the number of bills 
uh, that could be heard by copious use of the official time set aside for general praise and criticism. No, if uh, officially as um, courtesies and remonstrations, they're another opportunity to run out the clock on the daily voting. Both sides blame the other for the forced tedium, but the end result for many freshmen new to Salem was a bipartisan baptism in boredom. And so the uh, legislature churns on, but with much uh, less to uh, to deal with since the deadline on April the 5th. Well, as uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. launched his presidential bid Wednesday in Boston, a new poll was released that sees him at 14 percent against incumbent Joe Biden. Yes, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has entered the presidential rates with double-digit support from Biden voters. The survey of Democratic primary voters conducted by USA Today, Suffolk University, between Saturday and Tuesday has the anti-vaccine activist and member of the Kennedy clan capturing the support of 14 percent of those who voted for Biden in 2020. Only 67 percent of Biden's 2020 supporters said that they would support him for the Democratic nomination over his current challengers. Self-help guru Marianne Williamson, who also ran in the last cycle, has 5 percent, while 13 percent remain undecided. The poll was taken by landline and cell phone of 16, or rather 600 Biden voters identified from national and state polls from 2020 to 2022. Its margin of error is plus or minus four percentage points. My mission, the good um, uh, retired senator said, over the last 18 months, of this campaign and throughout my presidency will be to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power that is threatening out of uh, threatening out to impose a new kind of corporate feudalism in our country. He explained in his announcement speech to commoditize our children, our purple mountains, majesty to poison our children and our people with chemicals and pharmaceutical drugs to strip mine our assets, to hollow out the middle class and keep us in a constant state of war End quote. Kennedy is the nephew of uh, President John F. Kennedy and the son of former Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, both of whom were assassinated. He was best known as an environmental lawyer earlier in his life, but is now most associated with his anti-vaccine advocacy, which he has uh, been heavily criticized for, including by members of his own family. I bear no ill will of any kind of um, a disappointment to any of them. They have different views of the politics of this country, Kennedy explained. Uh, Kennedy drew the support of 33 percent of Biden voters who disapprove of the job he's doing and 35 percent of those who say his policies have been too liberal. He was strongest among self-identified conservatives, younger voters and those who don't have a college degree. In 2020, Joe Biden received more votes than any other president in U.S. history. Yet the poll tells us that those same voters are open to other Democrats to wage a a spirited primary. David um, Paleo Logos, president of the Suffolk University Political Research Center, is quoted as saying in USA Today, Kennedy, although a long shot at this point, starts in double digits and can't be ignored. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Former Oregon Secretary of State Bill Bradbury, was who established rather the state's first in the nation system of voting by mail, died on Friday. He was 73. Bradbury also advocated for environmental issues and ran for governor, all while battling multiple sclerosis for more than 40 years. He died after unexpected medical complications during a six-month around-the-world cruise with his wife of 36 years, Katie Iman. 
Bill Bradbury may go, uh, may be gone, but he leaves behind a legacy in Oregon that will endure for generations to come. That's a quote from U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley in a statement. Bradbury served for 15 years in the Oregon legislature, retiring from the state house in 1995 to fight the shrinking of salmon populations. Known as Mr. Fish, he served as director of the for the sake of the salmon until 99. The Oregonian reported Governor John Kitzhaber appointed Bradbury that year to be Oregon's 23rd secretary of state. He served for a decade, focusing on improving Oregon's voting system and establishing more transparent campaign practices. Bradbury established Oregon's vote by mail system, which has significantly increased voter participation since 2000. He also helped establish Oregon's online political campaign contributions system, or STAR, which gives the public access to campaign finance information. He ran for governor in 2010, losing to Kitzhaber in the Democratic primary. Those who knew him said he was always optimistic, despite his condition, which can cause extreme bouts of fatigue. In battling MS with his trademark relentless optimism, Bill showed all of us how to bring good cheer and inner toughness to life's many challenges. U.S. Senator Ron Wyden wrote on Twitter, he will be hugely missed. Well, the head of the Pentagon's office tasked with tracking UFOs told lawmakers of emerging capabilities and advanced technology from potential foreign adversaries, specifically Russia and China, that are concerning. But there's no definitive evidence of extraterrestrial technology or alien life. Sean Kirkpatrick, the director of the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, said during Wednesday's Senate's meeting at the Armed Service Subcommittee on Emerging Threats and Capabilities. Of the cases that are showing some sort of uh, advanced technological signature, I am concerned about what uh, the nexus is, Kirkpatrick said, after he was asked about the Russian-China capabilities to attack and surveil U.S. interests. I have indicators that some are related to foreign capabilities. We have to investigate that with our intelligence community partners. We didn't expound on um, what the indicators are, but said uh, American um, adversaries, especially China, are not waiting and they're advancing quickly. They're less risk averse at technological advancement than we are. They are willing to try things and see if they work. Are there capabilities that can be employed within the ISR, the intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance or weapons fashion? Absolutely, he said. Do I have evidence that they're doing this is, uh, in these cases? Kirkpatrick paused for a few seconds and seemed to weigh his response before answering, no, but I have concerning indicators. Again, he didn't expound on uh, what he meant by indicators, but it was certainly concerning. The director said that he's uh, talking about a single percentage of all the cases analyzed, which he said are about 650 reports. And it's difficult to definitively determine the object's origin without seeing a, a country's flag on the side of the object. Wednesday's public hearing is only the second one of the least uh, in the last 50 years in which lawmakers have openly discussed UFOs. The first was last May. Elon Musk is warning left-wing experts are training AI to lie about history and politics. But, of course, that can go both ways. And it can be um, motivated by something other than politics if harnessed by certain groups. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden, they reported a federal adjustable gross income of $579,514, according to their 2022 federal income tax returns, which were released by the White House on Tuesday. The president and First Lady filed their income tax return jointly. They paid $169,820 in combined federal 
taxes, Delaware and Virginia income taxes, according to the records. The president and first lady paid one hundred and thirty seven thousand six hundred fifty eight in federal income taxes and twenty nine thousand twenty three in Delaware income tax. The first lady also reported uh, paying three thousand one hundred thirty nine in Virginia income tax from her teaching at Northern Virginia Community College. An annual presidential salary is four hundred thousand dollars. Several Republican senators are suggesting they're open to discussing how Congress can step in to regulate artificial intelligence systems after Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced he wants to put guardrails on the rapidly advancing sector. Multiple senators on Tuesday said that they were concerned about the pace of unchecked AI advancement, though some also warned about the implications of hindering the industry's growth at a time when Adversaries like China are moving full steam ahead to integrate AI into their own military and intelligence gathering capabilities. None had seen Schumer's proposal, which is still in its very early stages. Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican out of Missouri, he cautioned that he was no expert in the complex field, but said he was concerned about the possible effects of AI on society. Representative Chip Roy, a Republican out of Texas, says he'll be pushing House Republicans to unwind parts of the Inflation Reduction Act as part of a deal that would raise the debt ceiling and cut federal spending. Roy, a House Freedom Caucus member who's been a central figure in the negotiations, said that he wants Republicans to strip Green New Deal type subsidies from the president's flagship Inflation Reduction Act passed last Congress. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, or KJP as she's now referred to, said that Senator Dianne Feinstein's request to have a temporary replacement on the Senate Judiciary Committee as she continues to deal with health issues was reasonable. Jean-Pierre also accused Republicans of trying to take advantage of the 89-year-old Feinstein's health by opposing the request, despite the fact that there's bipartisan calls for her to step down from her Senate seat. A group of abortion providers are fighting back against abortion restrictions by training primary care clinicians all over the United States in an easy and convenient abortion method that uses a handheld device. Doctors from the MYA network, which the outlet describes as a network of primary care clinics and clinicians in 16 states, are seeking to train more primary care centers in the United States to provide manual uterine aspiration, an abortion procedure that uses a small handheld device to remove the pregnancy tissue, as it's referred to in those circles. Well, the outlet describes the procedure and device used with it uh, as gentle enough that the tissue comes, uh, comes out almost completely intact. Almost. The Guardian added that it's also a quick and discreet procedure where a patient might be in and out of the door in less than an hour. This would be a game changer, they say. What a gruesome thing to um, report. And it reminds me of... Uh, some of the things that were done in the Second World War that we so strongly opposed. Alex Berenson is suing President Biden and Pfizer honchos over a Twitter ban that came as he raised concerns about the COVID vaccine. And how much do your congressional representatives know about artificial intelligence? Well, AI has the potential to both benefit and harm the U.S. in unknown and unimagined ways. But Congress is hardly any expert on the rapidly developing technology Lawmakers are now admitting AI is going to help us in many ways. It can also kill us. Representative Ted Liu, a California Democrat, said, as a recovering computer science major, my understanding of AI on a scale of one to ten is about a five. There's a lot I don't know. 
Republican Senator Cynthia Loomis said, we've got a long way to go before we have any sense of its true capabilities and understanding what people like Elon Musk see as its capabilities going forward. I put my knowledge on a scale of um, uh, one to 10 at about 1.5. Musk and more than a thousand others called for an immediate pause on giant AI experiments last month, warning the rapid, uh, rapid development sector may pose security threats. However, OpenAI CEO Sam Altman disagreed, saying pausing development is not an optimal way to address the issue. AI has the potential of, civiliz- of civilizational destruction, Musk told Fox News Tuck Car- Tucker Carlson earlier this week. He said if the industry is left unregulated, the consequences could be dangerous. As they hash it out, the technology moves forward. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as I quoted, um, Representative uh, Ted Liu, a California Democrat, uh, in just the last segment, AI is going to help us in many ways, but it can also kill us. Well, how AI could help millions of Americans suffering from deadly disease is another issue being considered. With 37.3 million people in the United States living with diabetes, 8.5 million of whom are undiagnosed per the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, the disease is one of the deadliest and most expensive in the country. Cedargate Technologies, a medical tech development company, announced a new AI-based solution that aims to reduce the burden of diabetes for both parent, uh, patients rather, and providers. In a recent study, Cedargate used its solution, Cedargate Analytics, to evaluate the data of more than 1.2 million patients in its database within a 12-month period. The results show that 80% of patients with no known diabetes who were identified by the model were confirmed to develop the disease in the following year, the company said. The company also said in a press release that Cedargate Analytics is the first commercially available and deployed value-based platform with this level of accuracy. This means we can confidently identify people who are at risk of developing or being diagnosed with diabetes in the future. And again, under the heading of uh, artificial intelligence, Mount Sinai scientists say breakthrough technology has drastic impact on diagnosis and treatment. Artificial intelligence is helping physicians to diagnose cancer more accurately and at much faster rates and at a lower cost than previously possible. That's according to a scientist working in computational pathology at Page AI, a company using AI to detect and treat cancer. The latest study from the company tasked 16 pathologists with a review of 610 whole slide images prepared at multiple institutions globally. They reviewed the slides once without assistance and then again with assistance from the pathology artificial intelligence guidance engineer. When page AI was used, diagnostic errors reduced by 70 percent. A Moscow court on Tuesday rejected an appeal from U.S. journalist Evan Gershkovich uh, to be freed from pretrial detention, meaning he will stay in the former KGB prison until at least May 29th, while a spying case against him is investigated, or at least that's what they're being uh, told. Gershkovich, a reporter for The Wall Street Journal, denies the espionage charges. He looked calm and smiled as he stood in a glass and metal cage before the ruling. Wall Street Journal reports that Russia's Federal Security Service, the successor to the KGB and the uh, journalist uh, said the journalist 
acting on the instructions of the American side, collected information constituting a state secret about the activities of one of the enterprises of the Russian military industrial complex, end quote. Russian authorities haven't publicly presented evidence to support the allegations against the reporter. A conviction in the case carries a sentence of up to 20 years in prison. Virtually all espionage trials in Russia end in a guilty verdict. The FBI arrested two defendants on charges that they set up and operated an illegal Chinese police station in the middle of New York City in order to influence and intimidate dissidents critical to the Chinese government in the U.S., That's what the Justice Department announced. An FBI agent alleged that the defendants established a secret police station under the direction of the China's uh, Chinese Ministry of Public Security in a Manhattan office building. The Justice Department said two men helped open the outpost in 2022 and deleted their communications with the MPS official once they became aware that the FBI was investigating. Representative Mike Walls said there are secret Chinese police stations in our country and all over the world hunting people down and violating U.S. sovereignty. My question is, what is Biden going to do about it? Meanwhile, Steve Dettelbach, the man President Biden chose to lead the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, followed in the footsteps of other Biden administration officials who have been uh, stumped by seemingly straightforward questions from lawmakers, questions that deal with subjects within what is supposed to be their purview. Well, on Tuesday, Director Dettelbach was asked by Representative Jake Elzey to give a brief 15 second definition of the term assault weapon. The thing President Biden and Democrats have demanded must be banned within the United States. Dettelbach, however, came up completely empty during his testimony in the House Appropriations Committee uh, in the hearing focused on ATF's fiscal year 2024 budget. Now, again, we're talking about uh, the man President Biden chose to leave the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. Well, the president says he wants to ban assault weapons, but his own ATF director, Steve Dettelbach, can't even define what they are, saying, I'm not a firearms expert. You don't have to be an expert to be able to define the thing that you are charged with overseeing all across the country. Well, Southwest Airlines uh, planes were briefly grounded nationwide on Tuesday for what the airlines called an intermittent technology issue, leading to more than 1,800 delayed flights just four months after the carrier suffered a much bigger meltdown over the Christmas travel rush. The hold on departures was lifted by late morning, according to the Southwest and Federal Aviation Administration, but not before the traffic at airports from Denver and New York backed up. Southwest has resumed operations after temporarily pausing flights activity this morning to work through data connection issues resulting from a firewall failure, the Dallas-based airline said in a prepared statement. Early this morning, the vendor-supplied firewall went down and connection to some operational data was unexpectedly lost. All Southwest Airlines departures halted nationwide due to the technological issue. Representative Cory Bush joined a call to impeach Justice Clarence Thomas. Missouri Democratic Representative Cory Bush, a member of the far-left squad, joined her fellow progressive lawmakers in calling for the impeachment of Supreme Court Associate Justice Clarence Thomas on Tuesday. Bush's position follows reports that Thomas did not disclose his lavish vacations with Republican mega donor Harlan Crow. He was insisted he was not required to do so and has denied all wrongdoing. She joined her colleagues, New York Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in demanding his removal from office over the matter.
In a statement on Tuesday, Bush said Thomas holds a complete disregard for law and ethics that is incompatible with the trust and confidence placed in federal judges. Bush, in her statement on Tuesday, said Thomas has made a mockery of his ethical obligations and disgraced himself and the entire judiciary and said recent discoveries are just the latest in a pattern of lawless and shocking behavior that has characterized Justice Thomas's career. The disclosures that have just been made public were not required uh, to be reported prior to um, recently when he did report. Prominent pastor, author, and Christian broadcaster Dr. Charles Stanley has passed away. He has gone home. He died on Tuesday morning, April 18th at 90. In 65 years of ministry, Dr. Stanley helped to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world through his Bible teaching ministry. He had led um, First Baptist Church Atlanta for 50 years, but he stepped back from that role in 2020. Today, the Atlanta Church's membership includes people from 98 countries of origin, making them among the most ethnically diverse congregations in America. In Touch Ministries posted, In Touch Family, this morning, God called our beloved pastor, Dr. Charles Stanley, home to heaven. Dr. Stanley lived a life of obedience and is now receiving the joy of his soul, seeing his Savior face to face. Please join us in praying for the Stanley family. Today also marks the date of the passing of my father, who was a godly man. In his final years, he served as a pastor of a small church, the church I grew up in, the church that gave me my foundational uh, teaching in Scripture. And I think about my father, who today uh, has the opportunity to see his Savior face to face. Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin has been fully cleared to play. The question is, does he want to? Will he? We'll talk about that in just a few moments. But first, need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder that in the second hour, a conversation with Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis, their book, Tearing Us Apart. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin has been cleared to resume football activities. That's according to the team's general manager on Tuesday. Hamlin went into cardiac arrest after making a tackle during the first quarter of the Bills game against the Cincinnati Bengals on the 2nd of January. The 25-year-old has been at Buffalo's practice facility participating in voluntary off-season workouts this week. Uh, per GM Brandon Bean, DeMar Hamlin has been cleared to resume full football activities. Hamlin is in Buffalo and in a great uh, head space. Well, it's not his head that I think most people are concerned about. But ESPN reported that Hamlin was also recognized alongside the medical and athletic training staff of the Bills and Bengals and some of the staff from the University of Cincinnati Medical Center at the NFL Honors and on the field before Super Bowl, whichever one it was. L-V-I-I. I don't have time to work it out. 21st century, just give us the numbers. A parking garage collapse in New York City has claimed a life and injured four others. At least one person has been killed and four others injured after a parking garage collapsed in Manhattan, leaving cars piled uh, on uh, crumbling concrete on Tuesday afternoon. By the way, I was just reading a, an article earlier today. I'm not prepared to talk about it yet, but it is believed that the new electric vehicles, which are much heavier than the vehicles that we currently drive, the gas powered, and they're not sure that parking garages around the country are sturdy enough to manage the weight of a predominantly electric car fleet across the uh, the fruited plain. So kind of an interesting thought. Anyway, the garage collapsed at 415, resulting in a huge emergency response. A woman was heard screaming, get out. 
The image showed the uh, top floor caved in with vehicles falling through the crumbling concrete. Uh, People were also trapped in the elevator shaft, which uh, caved in. City officials said that as a result, the floors pancaked on top of each other. Residential apartments and businesses on the street have been told to evacuate uh, until further notice. Um, several people were injured. Others feared trapped in the uh, after the collapse at the parking garage in Financial District in Manhattan. Um, again, one fatality for injuries as of today. Religious liberty is once again before the U.S. Supreme Court. A Christian man who worked for the United States Postal Service as a mail carrier sued after resigning for fear that he would be fired over his refusal to deliver Amazon packages on Sundays. Well, Gerald Groff, he pointed to his religious observance. Sunday is widely recognized as the Christian Sabbath by some as the reason for refusing to work. The uh, case made it all the way to the Supreme Court, which heard arguments on Tuesday. At issue is an apparent clash between Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which directs employers to accommodate religious practices so long as it does not uh, produce um, undue hardship. And the 1977 Transworld Airlines versus Hardison ruling that allows businesses to disregard religious accommodation requirements if it causes the business more than a de minimis cost. Well, how this undue hardship is defined or interpreted is what the Supreme Court needs to clarify. And we hope that means embracing America's First Amendment religious liberty, which, based on the justices questioning, is where the court appears to be leaning. But until there's an actual decision, we don't know what the actual uh, move will be. Oh, here I do have this uh, this article, the collapse of a parking garage in New York City uh, that killed at least one and injured four. Um, uh, of this uh, aging structure used for vehicle storage uh, brought up the question of whether electric vehicles may be too heavy for old parking garages. Now, it may be that you can shore them up. I don't know what the protocol would be, but the five-level building, uh, which has several active um, violations listed with the city, dates back to 1925, was first licensed as a garage in 1957 for Five vehicles per floor. Well, that's been extended significantly. The exact cause of the structure's failure hasn't been determined, but updates have been made to it in the years since, and it's currently licensed to accommodate 276 vehicles. Well, images from the scene indicate at least a dozen SUVs were parking uh, were parked in just um, one floor. The incident occurred after a recent study raised concerns that many older parking garages may need to be reevaluated. Uh, to the increased uh, average weight of vehicles, particularly electric models. Now, not exclusively, but particularly. The report from the British Parking Association noted that some electric vehicles weigh more than double what popular models in the same segments did in the 1960s, due in part to their heavy battery packs. Uh, this also often applies to contemporary cars. The, um, for instance, a Tesla Model S weighs over a 1,000 pounds more than a gas-powered Mercedes E-Class, while a 9,000-pound, uh, rather, pound GMC Hummer EV is 2,400 pounds heavier than a similarly-sized Hummer H2 that um, was last sold in 2009. So it's a rather interesting um, question. I'm sure they'll either reduce the number of vehicles that can be parked in a, a particular lot based on the number of EVs that are uh, currently on the streets of a given uh, community, but it does raise some questions about the future of parking those vehicles, along with all the other questions about batteries and how long they last and what to do with them when they no longer function. 
Well, nine Biden family members are being probed. The House Republicans investigation into the Biden family's potentially criminal business has expanded to include six more family members. House Oversight Chairman James Comer explained thousands of pages of financial records related to the Biden family, their companies and associates business schemes were made available to members of the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability, which confirmed the importance of the investigation. And Comer said the Biden family enterprise is centered on Joe Biden's political career and connections, and it has generated an exorbitant amount of money for the Biden family. The names of the six additional Biden family members now under investigation were not named. But regardless, at the center of it all is the big guy himself. It is exhausting to keep up with dueling investigations. I mean, if lawmakers are violating the law, I suppose they need to be investigated. But the people's business is somewhere in there um, being neglected. Seventy five pro criminal prosecutors were funded by George Soros to the tune of 40 million dollars. George Soros is a name widely recognized in conservative media and is one of the main figures responsible for bankrolling the hard left agenda that's almost completely taken over the DNC. For example, crime is now rolling some of America's biggest cities, thanks to uh, largely uh, the districts where leftist attorneys uh, generals effectively refuse to prosecute criminals. Now, it's not exclusively there. Some of the lawmakers, uh, big cities in their districts are also seeing significant crime as well. But uh, it's focusing on Soros and the role that he may be playing. He is a primary um, a donor. He has given some $40 million in campaign contributions to 75 of these current pro-criminal prosecutors. Some of that is direct, some indirect. The latter is the case with Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, who is one of Soros' politically uh, lefted, uh, leftist um, prosecutors. Bragg is ignoring the Big Apple's growing crime problem to... Um, uh, investigate uh, Donald Trump in what may be a dubious case, given the fact that these are federal charges and we won't go over all of that again. But keep in mind that there are other investigations that are much more credible that the uh, former president is likely to face sooner rather than later. Well, Disneyland announced its newest celebration of sexual deviancy with a Pride Night special after dark party. According to the announcement, Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, Clarabelle, Donald, Daisy, and Goofy will be dressed in special attire as they make their way through the heart of Disneyland Park down Main Street, USA. Now, one can only imagine. I'll try not to give it much thought. The party in the California Amusement Park will occur on two nights in June, running from 9 p.m. to 1 p.m. I think that's probably should be 1 a.m. Long gone are the days when Disneyland was a safer place for families to enjoy themselves. It's become a bastion for pushing culturally a cultural ideology that may not be comfortable for some families with small children. Loudoun, although if you're there from 9 to 1 a.m., I'm not sure that's good parenting either. Loudoun County exemplifies the definition of insanity. Well, two years after or two years ago, a male student dressed in a skirt sexually assaulted two girls in different schools in Loudoun County, Virginia. They were aware of the assaults. They just simply didn't want to deal with them. The assaults exposed a school board that was more committed to pushing the woke gender bending ideology than to protecting students. Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin called for addressing the problem by creating special single use bathrooms for transgender identifying students. Loudoun County's response was to instead spend nearly $11 million to revamp the school restrooms to eliminate sex distinctions altogether. 
Well, the county's uh, school board still places adherence to woke ideology over protecting students from actual harm. Well, Youngkin's office responded in a statement. The governor was clear in his 2022 draft model policies that he expects Virginia schools to separate their bathrooms by sex. In the event that students require additional accommodation, a single-use bathroom should be made available, end quote. The back and forth in Loudoun County continues. During a House hearing yesterday, Joe Biden's ATF director, Steve Dettelbach, was asked by Representative Jake Elzey to give a short 15-second description of what an assault weapon is since the Biden administration is so adamant about banning them, and he couldn't do it. Others can't def- define what a woman is in other hearings. We live in a very confused age. Two Tennessee Democrats led another protest at the state capitol after being reinstated to the assembly. Months after Buttigieg promised to hold Southwest accountable, the airline delays hundreds of flights. Title IX enforcer Miguel Cardona refuses to define woman. And the Senate GOP blocked a Democrat bid to replace Senator Feinstein on the Judiciary Committee. And the White House press secretary condemned Republicans for their opposition. Xavier Becerra, he violated the Hatch Act, a U.S. government watchdog found. Not sure if there is a penalty for that. And President Biden's HUD nominee backed a movement to defund the police. Well, on this day in history, well, I guess we'll get to that in a moment. James tells me we got to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, as we all know by now, Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Many of us still marvel that it happened in our lifetimes. It does change things, but it does also present for us significant challenges. Well, just in time for the Supreme Court's official overruling of Roe versus Wade, pro-life scholar Ryan T. Anderson and pro-life journalist Alexandra DeSanctis released the ultimate guide, and I use that word deliberately, the ultimate guide to the pro-life policy issue titled Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is captivating. It reframes the ongoing debate in the current climate with the truth and this um, that this 50, uh, nearly 50 years experiment uh, with um, unlimited abortion in America has harmed everyone, even its most passionate proponents. Tearing Us Apart is a comprehensive guide. It's made for everyone because the Supreme Court decision affected everyone all of our lives. Ryan T. Anderson is a Ph.D., the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. He is the author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment and Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom. He's a graduate of Princeton and Notre Dame. He is the St. John Paul II Teaching Fellow in Social Thought at the University of Dallas. He lives on a small family farm in Virginia with his wife and their three children. Alexandra DeSanctis is visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, is a staff writer at National Review, and is widely published journalist covering politics, abortion, the pro-life movement, elections, and religion. She, too, is a graduate of Notre Dame and a former William F. Buckley Jr. Fellow in political journalism at the National Review Institute. She lives in Northern Virginia with her husband, and we are delighted to have both of you with us today. Welcome. Great to be with you. Thanks for having us. This is such a significant moment because while Roe versus Wade has been overturned and the decision making on the subject of abortion has been returned to the people, the nation is grappling with how to move forward. And for many pro-lifers in particular, 
Uh, the challenge for us is to rethink the, the direction that we ought to go. Let's begin, as you do in the, the book, uh, talking about the major harm that abortion uh, produces. It, you might assume your first chapter is titled Abortion Harms the Unborn Child. You might assume that we could at all at least agree on that point. But in 21st century America, in post-Row America, we don't even agree largely on that point. So let's begin there. Sure thing. I mean, so unfortunately, in 21st century America, there are science deniers. There are people who deny the basic scientific reality that the entity in the womb is an unborn human being. There are also still in 21st century America, equality deniers, people who deny that all human beings are created equal and endowed by their creator with a right to life. Um, so the, the, the more sophisticated pro-choice activists will concede the biological point, right? They don't want to be science deniers. So they'll say, yes, it is an unborn human being, but then they will deny the equality point. And they say, well, but it's not equal to us. It's not yet a moral person. This is the Peter Singer style um, arguments that you get from, you know, one of the, form, the, the professors at my alma mater at Princeton. Um, they can't affirm the declaration. They don't really believe that all human beings are created equal and endowed by their creator with an inalienable right to life. And that's where we are in 21st century America, right? People either denying the science about the unborn child or the morality, the equality. And what Alexandra and I do in that very first chapter of the book is we just marshal the evidence. We go through the science that shows that it's a human being. We go through the philosophy um, that demonstrates that it should be treated equal because that unborn human being is our equal. And then we look at the politics of the law, why it's not an overreach of the government to protect the natural right to life of every human being born and unborn. Would you like to comment on that as well, Alexandra? Well, I think Ryan covered it uh, pretty pretty successfully there. But uh, the last point that we, we do cover in that chapter that I think is important to note is um, kind of the, the way in which abortion supporters claim that even if an unborn child is uh, a, a human person or a human being and a, a human person, somehow um, a mother's right to her own body or a woman's right to her own body trumps the child's right to life. And this is just the wrong framework, right? We should be thinking about the duties that parents have and a mother has, a father has to care for their children. Not This is not a competition of rights. And, and the fact that a child is, has come into being inside his or her mother is not licensed to kill that child. It's a, a requirement to care for him. Interestingly, we have come to accept the notion, and I'm speaking broadly of the culture, that women need abortion to be equal and empowered. And you argue in the book that neither thing has been accomplished. Rather, there has been harm that you outline in detail uh, as a consequent. Talk, talk a bit about that claim that uh, in order for women to be equal to, to men in our culture uh, and empowered in our culture, she has to have the freedom to destroy uh, the child developing in her in utero and how that accomplishes exactly the opposite. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a pervasive claim. I think this is the, the predominant argument in favor of abortion, and it, it's so prominent even that the Supreme Court repeated this very idea in its decision in, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, essentially upholding the, the Roe v. Wade decision. The court said we can't overturn Roe, at least in part because women have come to rely on abortion. Women can't participate in the, the social or economic life of our nation unless they have abortion as part of helping them order their reproductive lives. And this is a, a really damaging notion for women um, for a number of reasons, you know, not least of which is that abortion actually harms women. Uh, but the idea of abortion harms women, too, right? The notion that there's something dysfunctional or disordered about the female body, about pregnancy, about, you know, the female mode of reproduction 
this takes the male body as the norm and as the ideal and treats women as though there's something wrong with them or as though to kind of participate in a man's world, women have to just get rid of whatever the the consequences might be of sex and and act as though they were never pregnant uh, in order to be able to kind of compete or be on equal footing with men. We're told that um, abortion is first and foremost a matter of female autonomy, that it is a benefit to her. And again, in the book, you go in great detail. And I've been in the pro-life movement for decades. This is the best I've ever read on the subject. But you go into detail uh, about the, the, the cost and the um, the tremendous message it sends to a woman to suggest that she must fight against, she must reject uh, her own offspring in order to pursue her own interests. And the, the tremendous toll that takes certainly on her, but for the broader culture, the, the father, the broader family and so on. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things that we and, and first, you, uh, thank you for saying um, that um, Alexander and I worked hard to try to make this um, a very clear, compassionate and persuasive compiling of all of the evidence, all of the arguments. Uh, and so it's gratifying to hear you um, say that about the book. And uh, what we wanted to show is that there's a better way of understanding what um, women's equality should look like. Um, that what we got for the past 49 and a half years, a, a version of equality that says in order to be equal, you have to deny your most distinctively feminine attributes, right? The, 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 the God-given blessing that you can carry a child in your own womb that to be equal to men, you have to deny that. You have to either sterilize your body or kill your offspring. That's a false vision of equality. And a true vision of equality, it's a colleague of ours at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Erica Bakiaki, who talks about there's an asymmetrical nature to human reproduction. And true equality takes that asymmetry seriously. Rather than trying to force women to live as if defective men, it says the, the female way of being human is equal to the male way of being human. And we can structure our laws. We can structure our marketplaces. We can structure our education system, including higher education, in ways that take both ways of being human seriously. One of the things that you argue in the book, uh, post-abortion, that women risk emotional and psychological damage. We're being told in the broader culture that there is no fallout. This is such a benefit. It's such a relief. It opens such a broad uh, set of options for a woman who has chosen to reject her child in favor of her own autonomy, that there is no emotional or psychological damage. And women who uh, who dare to speak up. Um, are simply denied, um, first of all, being heard and that they exist. Yeah, this is a really a damaging aspect, I think, of the pro-abortion rhetoric, right? Because the, the argument now for abortion is we have to celebrate this. This is a social good. It's not We don't talk about it as safe, legal, and rare anymore. We're supposed to celebrate abortion and, and act as though it's always this wonderful solution for women. But the fact is that's actually not most women's experience of abortion. We know uh, from statistics that most women choose abortion because they feel like it's their only option. They're not choosing it because they think it's great or a perfect solution. They're choosing it because they're, they're desperate, essentially, or they're not get, you know, getting support from the father of the child. They're not getting support from their own family. And we know that after the fact, a lot of women do suffer, like you mentioned, from psychological after effects, whether it's you know, uh, guilt, regret, depression, anxiety, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, even suicide. Uh, at elevated rates after having had an abortion. And these women are, are simply ignored or even attacked uh, when they, they share their experiences because we're all supposed to believe that abortion is this wonderful solution. You also write about the fact that abortion harms the family, the relationship between a mother and a father, the extended family, and so on. 
Does that make a difference when we're talking about the autonomy of a single woman being able to determine her own future? Yes. I mean, what what many women report is that the reason they feel constrained, uh, pressured, unable to carry the child into the world, but forced by circumstances to think that abortion is their least bad option is precisely because they don't have the support of a marital partner, an extended family. Um, uh, A really interesting statistic is you are a child um, uh, conceived inside of marriage. You have a 4% chance of dying by abortion. If you were a child conceived outside of marriage, you have a 40% chance of dying by abortion. Uh, Another way of putting uh, the statistic is that um, of all women who um, seek abortion, only 14% of them are married. By contrast, 86% of women who have abortions are unmarried. Marriage is the best protector of the unborn uh, because what marriage does, it, it ensures that that man is committed to that woman before children are brought into the world. Uh, Anytime you're contemplating an abortion, a child has already been brought into the world. The only question is, will that child be able to exit the womb and, you know, enter the the, the visible world to the naked eye? Marriage is the best protector of unborn children. It's also an institution that really helps um, uh, uh, allow mothers to care for their children and to bring them um, into the next stage of of their lives. We're talking this afternoon with Ryan Alexander and Alexandra uh, excuse me, Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are the co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is a must-read in this post-war era, whether you are pro-abortion or pro-life. Um, I would highly recommend it. We're going to take a quick break. We will return in a moment and continue our conversation. So do please stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. At the time the book was being written and uh, just about to be released, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. It could not be more timely, giving us a perspective on where we go from here. Uh, and I so appreciate the uh, the effort that they put into writing uh, this uh, manual, I would say, for moving forward. Uh, let me ask you about the decision the Supreme Court made. At the time, as I mentioned, you were writing this book. It wasn't clear which direction the court was going to go. They obviously overturned Roe versus Wade, and there's been a lot of discussion since about what the Constitution actually says about abortion. Those who support uh, abortion rights throughout uh, a pregnancy believe that there is a constitutional right because the Supreme Court said there was. Others who have recognized that there is no constitutional right rejoice that they finally got it right. Your thoughts on the decision that was made by the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, sure, so there's nothing. Was... You can take it, Ryan. <laughs> so, okay. I was going to say there's nothing in the Constitution that even remotely could be construed. Uh, to protect our right to choose to kill an unborn human being. Uh, Whether it was the original Roe v. Wade decision that said it was a privacy right, or then the Casey decision that said it was a liberty right, um, or then the the hope for academic argument was that it was an equality right. This was something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, had embraced later in life and many academic defenders of abortion. So, you know, whether it's privacy, liberty, or equality, all of those rights, those are real rights, but they all have limits. And neither privacy nor liberty nor um, equality justifies killing another innocent human being. And so our Constitution, uh, rightly understood, has never protected a right to abortion. The Supreme Court simply got it wrong 49 and a half years ago. It repeated the error 
uh, uh, 30 years ago in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And all the court has done in the Dobbs case is admitted its mistake and overturned Roe and Casey. Now, there are some pro-life scholars, and, and Alexander and I are sympathetic to this argument, although we think you know, more research needs to be done, and the current Supreme Court isn't there yet, that argue that rightly understood the 14th Amendment to our Constitution, which prohibits any state from denying equal protection of the law to any person, that that should include the unborn uh, human person. Uh, I don't think the current court, uh, the votes simply aren't there, which means that in the meantime, we need to pass laws at the state level protecting unborn babies. We need to pass laws at the federal level. Uh, we need to work to either have a constitutional amendment or to have justices that interpret the 14th Amendment that way, because ultimately we can't be half uh, abortion, half uh, pro-life in the same way that we couldn't be half slave, half free. As Lincoln taught us, a house divided cannot stand. So eventually we need to come to a national but we're going to start by doing this state by state, right? We're not there yet. So we need to be um, making progress at the state level uh, today. You write in the book, Tearing Us Apart, how the pro-life community can respond to our current uh, situation. And we'll perhaps get into that a bit later, but it's an important part of the book. Uh, but but let me ask you, um, the damage that has been done uh, to the medical profession in this nearly 50 years of abortion on de- demand before Roe versus Wade, of course, abortion was legal in some places, including my home state, regrettably, my home state of Oregon and other uh, other states. But what has abortion on demand uh, done to the medical profession in terms of perverting its primary purpose and reducing the unborn to something less than worthy of the kind of medical attention that one presumed the oath required uh, preserving. Yeah, so the, the problem, of course, with abortion is that it's not actually a health care procedure, right? It's a, a procedure that kills an innocent human being. There are two patients involved in every abortion, there are two human beings there, the mother and the child, and abortion targets one of those human beings for death. And it's not medically necessary. It doesn't cure any disease. It doesn't solve any ailment. It doesn't treat any problem. It just kills a child because a woman doesn't want to be pregnant for whatever reason. And so at that point, once you have a, a country where this is accepted as a, a form of healthcare and where some number of doctors are willing to perform this procedure, even though it's not medically necessary, uh, that perverts our understanding of what healthcare is, and it perverts our understanding of what a doctor is. So now, instead of being a, a medical professional who's using his talents uh, to cure and heal, a, a doctor becomes a, essentially a technician for hire who's using the tools of his trade to, to kill. Um, and so that that has um, very unfortunate downstream effects on on all of our med- our uh, medical field. You know, it's rather interesting in the book, you offer some examples of medical professionals who practiced abortion um, some uh, for many, many years before coming to the realization that they are destroying a human body. It's it's difficult to imagine that you couldn't uh, that you would be involved in the practice and not recognize that until there's an epiphany at some point. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, how some of these medical professionals professionals who have had an about face? Uh, after having performed abortion for a long period of time and what the mitigating circumstance is that reverses their perspective on what they have known from a technical and medical standpoint all along. Sure. I mean, perhaps the most famous example is Bernard uh, Nathan. Yes. Who is, you know, one of the founders of NARAL pro-choice, um, you know, one of the largest uh, abortion activist groups uh, and abortion uh, providers uh, in the country. And um 
I think Bernard Nathanson himself performed several hundred, if not thousands, abortions. He also oversaw the performing of several thousand abortions in clinics that he oversaw. Um, I don't remember right now what the exact catalyst was um, in his case. I know one of the other stories that we tell in the book uh, was an abortionist um, whose daughter tragically died. And then when he returned to work and he's in the middle of performing an abortion, he kind of breaks down. He realizes, I just killed someone else's child. Um, And this was after having spent a couple months off mourning the loss of his own child. Um, Which is simply to say that, you know, there's a law written on the heart. Um, people know the truth, especially the, the abortionists, uh, because, you know, they, they, they physically they see the unborn child that they, uh, in some instances, are literally tearing apart limb by limb. Um, and then something needs to prick their conscience. Right? It, it, it's, it's not enough just to know the facts. There also then, it seems, needs to be something that alivens them, awakens them, not just to a fact, but also to a value to a moral norm, to a moral truth. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's a religious conversion. Sometimes the religious conversion comes second, right? They first are converted to the pro-life cause, and then they start asking deeper questions. Well, what is it about life that explains the dignity and the sanctity? And then they arrive uh, at the conclusion of God. But, you know, every individual is unique. And so no two stories are going to be the same. Um, yeah. How has the legal abortion harmed our politics and the rule of law? Well, there's quite a bit to unpack there. Some of the, the main points we make in the book, I'll, I'll focus on, on one uh, main one, I guess, is the way that uh, the legalization of abortion has really broken down our uh, our political parties, and, and in particular, the Democratic Party. Um, you know, before Roe was decided, there was such a thing as a pro-life Democrat. Um, a huge number of Democratic politicians consider themselves pro-life, even, you know, voted pro-life. Joe Biden, even right after Roe v. Wade himself, voted uh, in favor of a bill that would have essentially undone what had happened in Roe. And we know kind of where he ended up. So um, there's been a a big change on this in the Democratic Party. And I think we're all worse off because we have one of our two major political parties uh, that embraces abortion on demand for any reason. So much so that, uh, you know, you have Democratic presidential candidates now telling pro-lifers not to vote for them. Uh, because that's how how uh, committed they are to abortion on demand, um, even though most Democrats, most Democratic voters are not where the party is on this issue at all. Only about 18 percent um, of Democratic voters support abortion on demand until birth. And yet the party has, has fully embraced this um, this position. And it, I think we're, we're all worse off because of this would be a much better country if, if voters had a meaningful choice between two political parties, neither of which was was committed to this kind of injustice. Mm -hmm. Uh, One example in a speech at the NAACP annual convention in Atlanta uh, earlier this month, the vice president uh, compared pro-lifers in the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs uh, to the slaver, a slave owner of the Old South. Uh, She said our country has a history of claiming ownership over human bodies. Uh, Her historical reference was accurate, but the analogy was completely reversed. Uh, Again, an example of the misunderstanding of what abortion on demand actually is. She got it exactly wrong. Yes. I mean, imagine the the claim, you know, if you don't like slavery, don't own a slave. Or the claim, I'm personally opposed to slavery, but politically or publicly, I'm in favor of your choice to have a slave. I mean, that's what's at stake when someone says, oh, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I'm you know, in favor of choice, or if you don't like abortion, don't, don't have an abortion. 
um, the idea that um, the the decidedness debate that's in favor of protecting the right to life of the unborn child is actually the analog to um, the slave owner is just ludicrous. And there have been a variety of academics trying to claim that the 13th Amendment um, is actually the, the ju- justification for uh, abortion. Um, and they just seem utterly unwilling to acknowledge that there's already a moral relationship that has taken place. There's already a relationship between that mother and that child. And it's not, you know, involuntary servitude to say that no one, including mothers, can kill their own, uh, can kill anyone, right? I mean, it's one thing to say we shouldn't kill strangers. It's another thing to say mothers shouldn't kill their own children. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick um, a quick break. Again, we're talking about uh, the fabulous book that should be in your library if you would like to be effective during this season, post-Roe, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. My guests, Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is a must-read, and I would highly recommend it. Uh, on the subject of abortion in America post-Roe. They cover how abortion harms children, how it harms women and their families, uh, how it harms equality and choice, one of the uh, champions of abortion on demand, uh, how it harms medicine and the rule of law, politics, uh, and the media and popular culture, and importantly, uh, what the pro-life movement should do next, which is precisely the question I want to put to our guests now. Given the situation we find ourselves in, I think many folks thought once Roe versus Wade is overturned, our work is done. We recognize now that that is not the case. What should the pro-life movement do next? Well, we talk about this a bit in our in our conclusion. Well, at length yes. in our conclusion, and we don't give... Um, too many specific prescriptions, but the main thing we call for is, first of all, charity among pro-lifers and prudence as we disagree and discern what the next right steps are, right? Because what's, what's possible in one state is not always going to be possible somewhere else. There are a number of states at this point that have almost total protections for unborn children from the moment of conception, and there are a lot of states where, unfortunately, those laws just aren't politically feasible right now, and so there has to be some kind of room for, for incrementalism and for understanding that we have to change hearts and minds, even as we push for more and more protective laws. Um, So that would be, I think, a major part of the strategy. I know that you write about pregnancy resource centers. They have been the subject of uh, violence and opposition of late since the uh, early leak of um, what was likely to be the overturn of Roe versus Wade. What do you say about these pro-life centers that in many cases outnumber abortion clinics across the country? Uh, and the value that they and the role that they will play moving forward in this post-Roe era. These pregnancy resource centers um, are a godsend to thousands of women, uh, women who don't want abortion, women who want to bring their children um, out of the womb and into the world. And they get no assistance from people who claim to be pro-choice. I mean, I think the attacks that we've seen of pregnancy resource centers really put to lie the claim that the other side is pro-choice. The other side, unfortunately, the activists on the other side is very much pro-abortion, right? That's what, that's the choice that Planned Parenthood will help you with. They won't actually help you if you're planning to be a parent and you have an unborn child in your womb who you want to uh, bring to term. The pregnancy resource centers do that. Um, And they exist merely to serve those women who voluntarily come to them, seeking their assistance 
And that's why it's so utterly grotesque, if not downright satanic, that we've seen the attacks on them over the past several weeks and several months since the opinion was leaked. Uh, and, and I think it's also particularly um, uh, um, just unacceptable how unwilling law enforcement has been to go after the people perpetrating these crimes uh, and really you know, protecting the rights, the freedom, the safety of these pregnancy resource centers to minister uh, to women who are seeking their assistance. In the book, Tearing Us Apart, you make the point that abortion is more than a religious issue. But what would you say to those who argue that it's Christian to support women's right to abortion? We're hearing that a lot from lawmakers, but we might hear it a little closer to home as well. Well, I find this argument very absurd because it usually comes from the same people who who try to claim that being opposed to abortion is just uh, forcing our religion on others. And they're very opposed to that. But then suddenly they also want to have it both ways and, and argue that uh, supporting abortion is Christian. So there's clearly a double standard here. But uh, more to the point, perhaps, it's, of course, not Christian to support killing innocent human beings. Now, it, it is Christian to support women in difficult circumstances who are dealing with an unplanned pregnancy, who need help uh, and, and support as they, they parent or, uh, you know, as they welcome their child. But killing that child is never actually a Christian solution, no matter what situation a woman might be facing. Uh, you know, telling her that it's a, a solution of some kind to enact violence, lethal violence against her child is, is deeply unchristian and, and deeply wrong. I, I like the phrase that you use throughout the book. And I, to say I like it is a bit odd, but um, lethal violence to to subject a child to lethal violence, which is a perfect description of what abortion is. One of the points you make is that we don't really talk about abortion. We use euphemisms, but we don't talk about what actually happens. And we try to distance ourselves from that because I think to confront it face on is perhaps too painful for most people. There are some, of course, who might be the exception. Uh, how how important is it for us to understand precisely what it is we're talking about, what happens in uh, these situations, and whether or not we, f- we frame our uh, opinions based on euphemisms or what's actually happening? Oh, it's vitally important. This is why the other side speaks in euphemism. It's, it's why the other side um, doesn't actually speak clearly and truthfully about what's going on. It's why the other side right now, as we're speaking, is lying about ectopic pregnancy care, lying about miscarriage care to claim that pro-life laws uh, would prohibit care in these cases. It's why they use euphemisms like sex-selective abortion rather than, you know, using accurate language. This is uh, lethal discrimination on the basis of sex. I mean, and it's just so um, fascinating to me that the voices that are loudest in condemning racial discrimination, sex-based discrimination, disability-based discrimination, they go silent or even worse, they cheerlead when it's lethal discrimination on the basis of race, lethal discrimination on the basis of sex, lethal discrimination on the basis of disability, which is what we see when we have uh, more black babies being aborted mm-hmm. than born in New York City. We have millions of missing girls across the globe. We have countries like Iceland claiming to have eradicated Down syndrome, when in reality, they have eradicated people with Down syndrome. They didn't find a cure for the genetic disorder. What they've done is successfully diagnosed and killed all of the um, children diagnosed with Down syndrome. Um, So it's very important that we don't fall for the euphemism um, that the other side uses to talk about these issues, that we speak the truth clearly and compassionately. (laughs) 
Well, I appreciate, too, that you go into the the history and the founding of the abortion movement, that the eugenicist uh, perspective has been successful even in our century in that there's a disproportionate number of Hispanic and African-American babies who are subject to abortions in this country, uh, an inconvenient truth that, uh, again, is overlooked or minimized because this is creating opportunity for for black women moving forward. Yeah, this is a very disturbing argument, and and you see, um, in fact, in the the wake of Roe having been overturned, abortion supporters making the argument that this is disproportionately going to affect uh, non-white populations and women. And and my first thought is, well, if that's true, shouldn't we be supporting these women? Right, the idea that kind of ramping up abortion numbers or, or building more abortion facilities in these neighborhoods is not actually a solution. If if women uh, of color are feeling like they have to choose abortion at higher rates, then that's a, a serious problem in our society. And we should be working to support those women, not just kind of helping them access abortion as much as, as, as uh, you know, Planned Parenthood would like them to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what can pro-life, and we've touched on this a little bit, but pro-life advocates do to make it easier for women to choose life. We've talked about the pregnancy resource centers, but for the individual, what do you recommend? Because uh, I think when they read the book, they're, they're going to want to be proactive and not just better informed. What can we do to help support women? There's an endless variety of things that we can do. And it all depends on what our station in life, our vocation in life is. I mean, for some of us, it's going to be prayer. Actually, for all of us, it should be prayer. (laughs) Um, For many of us, it's going to be a financial contribution. Uh, Look up your local pregnancy resource center and start making a monthly contribution, perhaps volunteering your time at that local pregnancy resource center. Um, Perhaps it's becoming a foster parent. Perhaps it's becoming an adoptive parent. Uh, perhaps it's, you know, writing that letter to the editor, writing the op-ed for your local newspaper. Perhaps it's lobbying your state representative. It's going to um, the state house and speaking with your elected representatives to make sure that they pass the good laws that will be protecting the unborn babies. Maybe it's working on paid family leave or maternity care. I mean, there's a variety of uh, both kind of supply side and demand side uh, public policies that we can be looking at. The supply side being the abortionist. Uh, the people who supply the lethal action, the demand. Why do women have a demand? Why, why do they think they need abortion? There are public policies that can address that as well. Um, so there really is an, you know, an infinite number of things uh, readers could do after um, finishing the book. And a lot really just depends on what their station in life and their vocation in life is. Well, and again, I want to emphasize that at the conclusion of the book, you offer a number of uh, things to think about in terms of how we can uh, contribute to this new um, this new landscape post row in a state like Oregon. It's definitely an uphill battle, but one that we've been engaged in for for decades and will continue uh, in other parts of the country. There may be um, a restriction on abortion that we could only have dreamed of years ago. So there's plenty of work to be done. And it begins, as you pointed out. Uh, with prayer and then being willing to uh, to move forward in action. I, again, want to thank both of you for the uh, clearly the hard work that you did in putting this book together. And I would suggest that our listeners get a copy of the book, read it and um, purpose to move forward in favor of life. Again, the title is Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. Thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments to wrap things up.
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. An undercover video released Wednesday by Project Veritas revealed that doctors in Texas and New York are routinely prescribing puberty blockers to children as young as eight years old. I don't know about you, but when I was eight years old, I couldn't have made a decision, a wise, mature decision about my future that might have irreversible consequence. Well, a social worker at Dell Children's Medical Center in Texas explained to one Veritas reporter who went undercover as a parent exploring transition services for her 10-year-old child. We do have patients who are starting as young as eight or nine. We have a list of gender affirming therapists that can uh, that we can provide. The social worker goes on to explain that in some cases, puberty blockers are prescribed to young children after just one consultation with a doctor. And in regards to prescribing puberty blockers, that's up to the prescriber's discretion. That's the kid. Uh, And they might just require a couple of appointments just to see, the social worker adds. It might be appropriate after one. It's not something that we want to gatekeep. Well, as adults and medical professionals, wouldn't you want to gatekeep? In another clip, uh, Prisha Mosley, a woman who transitioned as a teen only to detransition later in life, tells the outlet that she was uh, pressured into undergoing transgender surgeries and hormone treatments without a proper understanding of the impact of the procedures. You know, things any eight-year-old would understand. They said it was transition or suicide, like I was uh, given no choice. I was told, you will kill yourself if you don't go through with these treatments, she says. At one point in the video, an unnamed Project Veritas journalist asks a family medicine specialist at St. Mark's Institute for Mental Health in New York City whether surgeries could be conducted on a 10-year-old. They could. Yeah. The medical doctor responds. I've never done a 10 year old. To be quite fair with you, I've done 15, 16 year olds in a Zoom recording. Project Veritas acquired a group of medical practitioners. They spoke about the reproductive regret experienced by uh, by young adults who transitioned as minors and lost the ability to procreate as a result. During the call, pediatric endocrinologist at British Columbia Children's Hospital acknowledges that some individuals who transition as minors later regret undergoing sterilizing procedures, but argues that the long-term cost is worth uh, worth it to make the child happy in the present. We try to talk about it, but most of the kids are nowhere in any kind of brain space to really talk about it in a serious way. That always bothers me, but, you know, we still want the kids to be happy, happy in the moment. Right, he says, happy in the moment with lifetime consequence. The video represents the first of a three-part series examining how young medical professionals are not only allowing but encouraging children to begin the journey of medical treatment required for gender transitioning, Project Veritas said in their press release. The undercover investigation discovered hundreds of large health organizations admitting to advocating that children who haven't even hit puberty are mature enough to begin these life-altering and often irreversible treatments. After visiting 50 different clinics across eight states, Project Veritas discovered that puberty blockers were often made available for children as young as eight after only one prior consultation. An email obtained by the outlets also revealed that an adolescent pediatric specialist within the Mount Sinai hospital system places children on the path toward transition at just 10 years old. If they do want to pursue surgery, it's always good to be within the hospital system already. Just an FYI in terms of that. Actually, quite a few surgeons will perform on youth. The barrier is with insurance, so it ends up being out of pocket, the letter reads. Well, the practitioner in question, a later segment shows, walked an 
unnamed journalist through how the procedure works. The way to go at this um, age, at age 10, would be would be something like a puberty blocker. When you then get to age 14 is when I'll consider some, you know, cross-gender hormones. 14 is a reasonable age. Most kids are mature enough to make a relatively informed decision, a relatively informed decision. While gender transition advocates claim puberty blockers merely pause puberty, leaving no lasting effects on the development of the body, some research suggests that the pause leaves children permanently altered as their bodies fail to develop adequate bone density and other secondary characteristics associated with puberty. At age 14, the doctor says children are generally mature enough, generally, uh, to begin irreversible process of making cross-sex hormones or taking them. So I need the uh, patient to be a little, to be mature enough to make a relatively informed decision. I get it that there are some 14-year-olds that are not, you know, mature. But generally speaking, they usually are pretty good. Life-altering irreversible procedures and drugs they're generally you know pretty pretty good and these are decisions that in some areas they want to prevent parents from having any role in at all because you know they might be mature and have a pretty clear uh, understanding of what's in the best interest of their own children well on this day in history 1775 the american revolutionary war begins with the battles of lexington and concord 1865, a funeral is held at the White House for President Abraham Lincoln. Assassinated five days earlier, his coffin is then taken to the U.S. Capitol for a private memorial service in the Rotunda. 1939, Connecticut becomes the last of the original 13 colonies to ratify the Bill of Rights 147 years after it took effect. On this day in 1951, General Douglas MacArthur, relieved of his Far East command by President Harry S. Truman, bids farewell in an address to Congress in which he quotes a line from a ballad, Old soldiers never die, they just fade away. On this day in 1966, Bobby Gibb, 23, becomes the first woman to run the Boston Marathon at a time when only men are allowed to participate. 1977, the Supreme Court and Ingram versus Wright rules 5-4 that even severe spanking of school children by faculty members does not violate the Eighth Amendment ban against cruel and unusual punishment. On this day in 1993, the 51-day siege at the Branch Davidian compound near Waco, Texas, ends as fire destroys the structure after federal agents smash their way in. About 80 people, including two dozen children, and sect leader David Koresh are killed. On this day in 1999, a Los Angeles jury awards $3.8 million to beaten motorist Rodney King. 1995, a truck bomb destroys the Alfred P. Murrow Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, killing 168 people. Bomber Timothy McVeigh, who prosecutors said planned the attack as revenge for the Waco siege of two years earlier, would be convicted of federal murder charges and executed in 2001. On this day in 2005, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger of Germany is elected pope in the first conclave of the new millennium. He takes the name Benedict. 2013, uh, Shokar Sarnayev, a 19-year-old college student wanted in in the Boston Marathon bombing, is taken into custody after a manhunt that uh, that left the city virtually paralyzed. His older brother and alleged accomplice, 26-year-old Tamerlan, was killed earlier in an attempt to escape police. On this day in 2018, Raul Castro turns over Cuba's presidency to Miguel Marie 
Uh, Mario Diaz-Canal Bermudez, the uh, first non-Castro to hold Cuba's top government office since the 1959 revolution led by Fidel Castro and his younger brother, Raul. And finally, on this day, 2018, Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois brings her 10-day-old daughter to the Senate floor, one day after senators approved a new rule permitting it. Duckworth was the first senator to, senator rather, to have given birth while serving in the Senate. Fox News settled with Dominion Voting System and the latter... Um, Ladder's defamation lawsuit on the day the trial was set to begin and the 77 uh, let's see 787.5 million dollar payout but that doesn't end the crisis for Rupert Murdoch uh, beyond the um, payout to end the Dominion case uh, Fox now must contend with a second defamation suit filed by a rival voting machine company Smart Metric um, USA which has demanded $2.7 billion. And Fox investors also are lining up with their own lawsuits, alleging that Rupert Murdoch and other board members were derelict in their duties by allowing Fox News to promote election lies, which harmed the network's reputation as a news organization. So more to come on that. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in, what, 22 hours. So I hope you'll join us. I want to thank James Blend for engineering and producing today's program and thank you for making the georgine rice show part of your day have a great night thanks for listening to the georgine rice show podcast if you'd like more information on today's guests please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on facebook and join us live every weekday at four for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 kpdq Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.